0: If you would turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we begin reading this morning in verse 14 and continue on through the first verse of chapter 7. Hear the word of the Lord. The Apostle Paul speaking to the church in Corinth says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Let's pray together. Father, once again, we hold uh, the most precious book in our hands. We pray, Lord, that as we search your scriptures, that we might find the mind of Christ, that we might uh, have the revelation of your own character laid out before us as we read your holy law, that we would know not only what is expected of us as your people, but that we would have the same desire, the same mindset, that we would... Desire holiness and desire your glory to be spread throughout the world. We pray, Father, that the the good news of the gospel would be glorious to us this day and that we would know how to treat the law as a result. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. It's funny. uh, I was just talking to a couple people before they came in about the news. And, uh, you know, on any given week, the news can make any of us Crazy, angry, sad, bitter, all the above. But let me share something in the news with you. Um, The controversy this week, uh, which I thought was kind of funny a little bit at first, was the the upcoming Barbie film. But not for any reason that you might think, not because of her choice of wardrobe or her sexual orientation, which is what nowadays we seem to focus on all the time, but rather because of her involvement with geopolitical relations of the highest Regard. In the movie, apparently, there is a kid drawing of a map uh, of the world that includes a part of the South China Sea. And uh, in this map, there is what is known as the Nine Dash Line. If you don't know what the Nine Dash Line is, it's been around since 1947. It's a communist map of China's claim to the territories of a body of water that currently belongs to Taiwan, the Philippines, the Viet- Vietnam, and a, and a couple of others as well. And so basically they're illegally claiming the rights to this same body of water that others already own. So it's been declared to be illegal by the International Convention, and obviously it's caused much anger amongst a number of people. But why in the world would Warner Brothers, who made the Barbie movie, support a communist map? Hmm. perhaps because China has the biggest box office in the world. More millions of dollars could be made off of China for the same movie that could be made off of here, right? And, and, of course, Hollywood has learned this a long time ago. Basically, since China has been opened up to buying movie tickets since the 90s, more and more movies have changed their acceptability to the Chinese government in order to make sure that they can sell tickets, Right? I'll uh, give you a couple examples. There was a movie uh, in, uh, I don't know how long ago it was, but it's called War- World War Z, where originally the characters in the movie were debating on whether or not the virus that caused the zombies in this movie came from China. Chinese government got whiff of this, and that scene was deleted altogether from the movie. Strangely, the same thing happened in the media. Was the virus out of China? Uh, we don't know, Right? <laughs> I'm not trying to get political here. I do have a point with this. I'm going to get to it in a minute. But in the remaking of the movie Red Dawn, if you remember in the 80s when Red Dawn originally came out, it was against the Russians, right? Well, the newer version was supposed to be against the Chinese, but when the Chinese heard about it, Hollywood had to pay a million dollars to remove every word related to China, any Chinese flag or anything else. But yet they still had all these Asian-looking people that were the enemy. Now it's North Korea as the enemy. See how that changed. Same thing happened uh, similarly. They can't prove it as well, but the newest Top Gun movie originally had some issues with China. uh, But strangely, in the movie, Tom Cruise and all of his Navy pilot buddies are fighting an unknown enemy. We don't know who they're fighting. It never says who the enemy is because China can't be involved, you see. Everybody knows China's the main enemy of the United States, but we can't say that because now we can't sell tickets to the communist regime well the barbie movie is a little bit different though and i am getting getting to a point biblically here the barbie movie is different because the previous movies all were removing things that were sort of offensive to china but now we're purposely putting things in the movies that would be acceptable to china there's a difference here right and 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 people begin to wonder why would we do that one of the u.s representatives came out and said why is it that the United States movie companies are carrying water for the communist regime. That's an expression. But basically saying, why are they doing the, the heavy lifting for someone that seemingly would be totally at odds with us in every way? And, and that's, that's sort of my point of what I'm get, getting at today in our text, is that there's a huge difference between supposedly a communist regime and secular Hollywood, but is there really? Right, I've told you this before that in the book of Revelation many times uh, it keeps making this reference to unbelieving kings and unbelieving merchants and how they work together for the harlot of Babylon, right? They're really on the same page. They're just making money for different reasons, but yet they're still in bed, if you will, with the harlot of Babylon. But Paul's point in our text this morning is that believers ought to have nothing to do with these things, That believers and unbelievers are really two different species, if you will, considering the fact that in Christ Jesus, we are what? New creations in Christ, a totally new creature, that we ought to have no uh, close ties, if you will, with unbelievers in the way that perhaps Hollywood and China have had close ties. And so Paul is using this analogy of a common yoke with two different beasts of burden That could not and should not work together because it always will end in disaster And so in fact, paul has deuteronomy 22 verse 10 in mind when he's mentioning this It says you shall not plow with an ox and donkey together. Why well because one's always going to outpower the other and as a result, it's going to end in not something good It may be fine to plow with two oxen. It may be fine to plow with two donkeys Uh, You can use each of them in that regard, but if you try to mix the two together, it will always end in disaster. Of course, just as Paul explained in his previous letter to the Corinthians, that these beastly examples were not written primarily for beasts, but rather for us, who are believers, that we would gain some spiritual truth from this. That's what he's going on here, is that just as these two beasts have nothing in common, it should not be used together under the same yoke, so we should not be carrying water, if you will, For the unbeliever we shouldn't be joined intimately with the unbeliever to the point where we're all working together in the same way if you remember from the very beginning of creation god is always separating things from each other to maintain his holy will and uh, early on we see this very very clearly so in this example, Paul is drawing out for the Corinthians that a believer is entirely different from an unbeliever. And he's going to say this again and again in our text this morning. But Paul's painting for us a very ridiculous picture, if you will, a scene in which the new believer is willingly putting his neck under the yoke of an unbeliever and then carrying out the same labor together to carry out the same purposes. And he's saying, how. How ridiculous this is. We should never even consider this as a possibility. But why would we do this? It will only end in disaster. But Paul, again, he's showing the utter foolishness of this because the unbeliever can't even grasp what the believer is wanting to do. He's not on the same page, can't even see the kingdom of God. How could they possibly work together in that regard? So, though this type of union might... <sighs> be a matter of integrity for the believer it's much worse than that by joining together intimately with an unbeliever the person who professes Christ is undermining their own faith they're undermining any assurance of their own salvation they're weakening their testimony to the world and likely even endangering their own children and grandchildren who will grow up not knowing the name of the Lord as a result. This is not something to be taken lightly. It's a very serious matter. And so Paul spends a a good amount of time explaining this to the Corinthians. Of course, Paul is not really saying anything new here. This is not a a Paulism, if you will. Uh, from the very beginning, God had been separating the believer from the unbeliever. We see the dreadful consequence, if you will, when the sons of God see the daughters of men, that they're beautiful, and they take them home as their wives. What happens? An ungodly breed comes about as a result. If you remember, when Abraham wanted to find a daughter for his son Isaac, he went and sent his servant thousands of miles away, seemingly, so that he could find one who is of the same lineage, the same family, that might at least be of the same mindset, didn't want his son marrying an unbeliever. And then we see that Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. And what does Esau do? He marries two unbelieving Canaanites. And we see the consequence of that. Just in our devotions in Genesis, if you've been following along as we, uh, the pastors write our devotions, one of them was on um, how Jacob and his family got a little bit too comfortable hanging out with the Canaanites, living in the same town and dealing with the Canaanites. And if you remember, Jacob's daughter Dinah is raped by one of the Canaanite men, one of the chief men. And he uses this rape as an opportunity to try to get Better dealings with the Israelites, that they would get into a more close relationship in terms of trade, in terms of giving each other husbands and wives, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And again, we know that that does not end well. Over and over again throughout the Old Testament, we see what happens when the believer joins hands in pledge with the unbeliever, either through an intimate relationship based upon love or some other business relationship where one pledges hands with another and even puts up security for another and how that also ends in disaster. Time and time again, we're warned against these types of relationships. If you remember in Paul's previous epistle in 1 Corinthians, he gives us the positive side of this same rule where he basically says that any man or woman... uh, uh, especially if they're widowed, but even their, their their first spouse, if you will, it says they can marry whomever they want. Again, they're not told that uh, you, know, you have to wait for God to give you the exact person that you're to marry. He like said you can marry whomever you want with this one caveat, so long as they're what? In the Lord. That's the positive rule. But here in our text this morning, Paul goes a little bit further explaining the negative rule, fleshing it out in a number of different ways. You can see why this rule is in place? What is the mind of Christ in this regard? And so he begins to ask a number of rhetorical questions, five of them in number, to continually to show us that the believer and the unbeliever are diametrically opposed in every way. Therefore, they should not be yoked together in any way. Here's the first question. Look in verse 14. Paul says, What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness now let me ask you do cops and criminals normally work together matter of perspective for some but no not normally if cops and criminals work together then there's no really difference between righteousness and lawlessness because they're they're supposed to be working opposite to one another right the criminal wants to break the law the police officer wants to enforce the law should not be the same Well, in the same manner the believer and the unbeliever on the opposite sides of the law the believer wants to keep God's law. The unbeliever wants to flout it in every possible way. And we see this time and again in Scripture. First John chapter 3, verse 4, the apostle tells us the unbelievers practice sin, and therefore they practice lawlessness. The believer, on the other hand, practices righteousness. Why would you put these two together? Same way, Romans 6, verse 19, Paul says the believers are slaves to righteousness, whereas the unbeliever is what? A slave to lawlessness. Slaves of two different masters. How could you possibly put these things together? It doesn't make sense. They they live by two different rules of life. Oh, but someone might say to me, and they have said to me, (laughs) I know some pretty moral unbelievers that have done much good in the world. They don't seem to be lawless people at all. Well, that depends on what law you're referring to. If you're referring to the laws of the land, I might agree with you. There, there are plenty of moral unbelievers that will try to keep the laws. I mean, they're not always going 80 miles an hour in a 30 mile per hour speed zone, right? They're not always purposely breaking every law that there is. But when it, it comes to God's law, what's the most important law? What's the greatest commandment? Love God with all your heart. Does the unbeliever do that? No. As a result, what are they called? Lawless, rebels. To the kingdom of God, you have one person who is seeking righteousness, seeking God's kingdom first and His righteousness. The unbeliever is seeking a different kingdom and lawlessness. That's how God sees it. Doesn't matter how you see it; it's how God sees it. And ultimately, why why is He giving this any, this revelation anyway? So we can understand the heart of God, so that we can live in light of God's will. Not so we can do what we want, right? That's the whole reason why he gives us this. If he, if he just wants us to do what we want, there's no point in giving us this at all. Just go and live how you want. Here's the second question Paul asked in verse 14. What fellowship has light with darkness? As you know, there's nothing more incompatible than light and darkness. Where you have the one, you cannot have the other, right? If you have light, you can't have darkness. It, it immediately expels the darkness, why would these two possibly want to join together? The Scripture says the unbelievers hate the light. They fear the light. Why? Because their evil deeds will be exposed. They don't want to come into the light. The believer, on the other hand, loves the light, feels freedom in the light, wants to get farther and farther into the light. It's it's not, matter of, it's not a matter of merely of a, a, an early bird and a late-night owl getting together. Right? Some of us like the morning hours better than the evening hours. I get that. That's not what he's saying. When he refers to darkness here, he's referring to someone who loves their sin. And when it comes to light, someone who loves holiness, who who loves the knowledge of God, who loves the law of God, those things cannot work together. In fact, um, the the way Paul describes this in, in Colossians chapter 1, it's not merely the fact that unbelievers prefer darkness. But he says they're actually a part of the domain of darkness. They're citizens of a dark kingdom. Whereas a believer is a citizen of the kingdom of light. So totally at opposites with one another. And, and therefore, if they're in different kingdoms, what does that imply? That means they follow a different king, right? And that's exactly where he's going in the next verse, verse 15. He says, what accord has Christ with Belial? Now, who in the world is Belial? Is that a word you use very often? Probably not. In the King James Version, some of you might be a little bit more familiar with it, because a number of times in the Old Testament it refers to wicked people as sons of Belial. Uh, most other English translations today will instead re- translate that same phrase as worthless sons, or sons of worthlessness, because the word Belial can, all, can either be translated as a proper name, or it can be translated as an adjective or a noun in that sense of, of this, this is a worthless person. That's ultimately what it means. Belial is though another word for Satan. It's another word for the devil. That this person um, is is the most worthless, despicable person you can think of. So you could see why someone would be called a son of a worthless being, son of the devil, if you will. And that's how Paul is using it. In this context, he's referring to one who submits to Christ as Lord and the other one who submits to the devil as, as his Lord. But again, I'm going to have someone say, to you, My friend's not a devil worshiper. <sighs> okay. Do we believe the scriptures or not? If we believe the scriptures, do we have more than two options? Is there more than darkness and light? Is there a third option somewhere, a gray? I mean, is there a third Lord that they can submit to? There's only two kingdoms and there's two kings. You're either a member of one or you're a member of the other. It makes it very plain. It's very black and white. Not everything is black and white in this world, but this is. It's very plain. It's not like a rivalry between the Capulets and the Montagues, where you just got two people that are in the same kingdom, but they really don't like each other, and, and eventually Romeo and Juliet work it out. It's not saying that at all. He's saying, No, it's two different kingdoms that are at enmity with each other for all eternity. And that the citizens in each one of those kingdoms, including Romeo and Juliet, are loyal to that king in their kingdoms. They should have nothing in common in that regard. And yet, oftentimes it happens. It will not end well for the believer. Then, also in verse 15, Paul says, What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever again the expected answer is none there's no there's no portion they share in common ephesians 4 from the opposite perspective helps us to see the sweet union that exists between believers right together we are in one body in one spirit we're called to one hope one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of us all but the unbeliever doesn't share any of those things not a single one And, and the reason for that is because they have no portion in god's covenant no share. No inheritance like we do. But, but it's interesting when the Apostle Peter is describing the relationship between a Christian husband and a Christian wife, he gives this extra reason why the Christian husband ought to be patient with his wife. He says, because they are heirs together with you of the grace of life. You share the same portion. You share the same inheritance. It ought to motivate Christian husbands even more to love their wives, knowing that they not only share the same destination, but they share the same worldview. Everything about it, they're on the same team. You're under the same yoke. Be patient with each other because you're both working together. You're going in the same direction. But not so the unbeliever. Again, Revelation chapter 21, verse 8 says, their portion will be in the lake of fire because of their lawlessness and because of their rejection of Christ. Again, how could a believer be yoked together with an unbeliever? knowing that they're going in exact opposite directions. I mean, literally, it would be like, you know, an ox and a donkey under the same yoke, but one's facing this way and one's facing this way, and they're both pushing at the same time. Where are you going to go? It doesn't work. You're going in opposite directions. It doesn't make any sense. And so finally, Paul asked in verse 16, he says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Now, in this case, the, the, uh, the believer is naturally drawn to worship the Lord and the holiness of his temple, whereas the unbeliever is naturally drawn to worship his or her idols, right? There are many idols. It doesn't have to be that stone statue that they're bowing down to, but there are many idols of the heart. They want to worship their idols. They do not want to worship God. And so as a result, again, they're not going to be worshiping together. A believer and an unbeliever will not worship together. They will not pray together. They will not serve the Lord together. Because their worldviews are are diametrically opposed to one another, they will be at odds with one another. They will work against each other at every turn. And as a result, the believer will continually be frustrated. Frustrated in, in trying to use his or her gifts for the Lord. Frustrated in spending time with the Lord. Frustrated in even seeking the Lord because this other person won't want anything to do with it. Even more importantly, if the believer is not careful, they'll find themselves turning away from the Lord altogether and then worshiping those idols, the same ones, right? The passage that David just read, I mean, right after Balaam is pronouncing a blessing upon the people of God, he hires some prostitutes to go and meet with those same Israelite men. And they willingly go, and they go worship their idols, it's amazing how quickly it happened. I mean, think of King Solomon. You, know? you couldn't get a greater success story in the Old Testament than King Solomon. The very pinnacle, the very height of Israel, the most power, the most wisdom, the most glory the nation of Israel ever received, there would be no reason for Solomon to turn away from the Lord after all the blessings that he's poured out upon him. But then what does he do? He marries a thousand foreign pagan wives. How is this going to end well? He ends up turning and away from the Lord and worshiping idols. You, you, you know, the, you guys familiar with Sesame Street? I try to use the illustrations that the kids have, you know, apply to every now and then. But if you remember Sesame Street, uh, there's that bit on there where they do, um, what's it called? Um, one of these things is not like the other. You remember that? It's got like a little catchy tune to it. So what happens is they have pictures of four different objects, right? And one of them is not anything like the other three. The three have something in common. You know they're supposed to have something in common, but one sort of sticks out like a sore thumb. And so while this song is being sung, a child is supposed to go up to the screen and touch the one that's totally different. It's part of the learning process, if you will. And, And the song goes like this. One of these things is not like the other. One of these things doesn't belong. Can you tell which thing is not like the other by the time I finish singing this song. I mean, this is what Paul is doing for us in this text. He's saying, the believer is not like the other. You ought to be able to tell the difference. It's pretty obvious if you consider it from a spiritual perspective. But I I think the problem is oftentimes when people who are tempted to be in an intimate relationship with an unbeliever, it's not because they were so strong spiritually and, and just, you know, made a mistake. Likely, it's because they weren't really walking with the Lord that closely anyway, and they really didn't notice any difference. They didn't. They couldn't tell a difference. Well, they seemed like a moral. They seem like a nice person. Might as well, you know. So sometimes it says something about the professing Christian more than it does about the opposite person. I mean, I actually have, I've known a couple of Christians that were in a relationship with an unbeliever. And we're doing some sinful things with that unbeliever. And then later, the unbeliever realized the testimony this person supposedly had and then broke up with them because it ruined their testimony. Can you believe that? I swear to you, it's true. It's happened. At least a couple times I've had friends that their girlfriend broke up with them because they said they were Christian and they weren't living like it. It's like, well, this is ridiculous. I'm, I'm causing you to be this horrible person. Can you imagine the unbeliever is the one convicted by it instead of the believer? makes no sense. Paul's making it very plainly for us here. But, but again, you might say, well, my, my, my girlfriend, my close business associate really isn't that bad. Again, I'm not saying that your friend is going around stealing candy from babies, you know, eating the heads off of chickens. You know, it's, it's not like some demonic worshiping person. But spiritually speaking, you're dealing with a person who's dead in their sin. You're dealing with someone who has no concept of the kingdom of God, and yet we're, we're singing songs here together. Let your kingdom come. Let your... Can you sing that and say that and then yet be with someone who has no desire for that to come? It makes no sense to be in that type of relationship with someone who's like, yeah, I don't want that. How could you sing that? You can't. Especially when we hear what Paul's reminder verse 16. He says, why? He says, for we are the temple of God And the Holy Spirit has taken up residence within us for this very purpose that He might have fellowship with us and that He might walk in our midst. He says, separate from these evil ties so that we can have a better fellowship with God. You remember when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden? What happened? What was the consequence? Ultimately, God no longer walked with them in the Garden of Eden. There are other consequences, but to me, that's, that's the worst one. God had a close, intimate relationship with them, and then because they did not separate themselves from sin, God no longer desired to walk with them. You see, there's a direct correlation. If you pursue an intimate relationship with sin, you cannot pursue a direct relationship with God. It just doesn't work that way. You remember what the Spirit says in Psalm 1? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. This is the blessed man. So the opposite implied is. You're kind of cursed if you're hanging out with these people all the time and, and, and spending time with people who have no desire for God, right? Again, Paul says in verse 17, Go out from their midst. Be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you. As you know, there are many illustrations in the New Testament that help us to see the difference between the believer and the unbeliever. There's a steep contrast between the two. If you remember, on the one hand, the believer is, is, is labeled as a sheep, in the midst of what? Wolves. A sheep in the midst of goats. Or how about wheat in the midst of weeds or chaff. Or even as shining stars in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Diametrically opposed illustrations each time. Now, of course, there's going to come a time at the end of the age when the Lord separates the sheep from the goats, Right? There's going to come a time when the Lord separates the wheat from the chaff in a permanent way. They'll, they'll not even be in the same kingdom, right? Totally different places. In the meantime, we're still surrounded by unbelievers, right? So what does that mean? Well, in the first epistle that Paul wrote in, in Corinthians chapter 5, Paul had to explain what he meant when he said for the believer not to associate with sexually immoral people. He says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindler or the idolaters. He says... Since then we would have to go out of the world altogether, but rather, he says, not to call such a person a brother. In other words, not to be in that intimate relationship with them as you would be with your own brother. I guess the same principle applies here. Paul's basically saying, you know, uh, certainly you're going to have interactions with sinners. That, there, that You can't avoid that. You can't just become a monk and go living out in the desert, right? Because we're also called to be salt and light. You can't just separate from the unbeliever, but yet if you pursue an intimate relationship with an unbeliever, what will happen? You lose your saltiness. You lose your light. You become ineffective as a Christian. You have no testimony to give to the world, and more importantly, God will not walk with you. Is that what you want? You'd rather walk with sin than to walk with the Lord? If you remember Samson, why did he lose the Spirit of God, the power of God? Ultimately, it's because he kept pursuing relationships with unbelieving women who kept challenging his relationship with the Lord. And eventually, the Spirit left him. We see very clearly that these women were Ones who hated righteousness, loved darkness, worshipped idols, were daughters of Belial. You may not see that as clearly today because you don't see the same type of idol worship, but it's the same concept. Again, it doesn't mean that we're to avoid unbelievers at all costs. It just simply means that when it comes to your most close, intimate friendships, relationships, business dealings, do not join hands and pledge with someone who's going in a different direction to you. Because it will not end well. We're called to be salt and light in this world, but if we don't maintain some separation from the world, we cannot be salt and light. Look back at our text. Verses 16 through 18, Paul's quoting a number of Old Testament passages. You'll see it's actually in your Bible. It's probably uh, set apart uh, in the way it's um, laid out for you. But basically, Paul is quoting from a number of passages that dealt with how the prophets were speaking to the Jews after their exile in Babylon. You remember they were exiled to Babylon for 70 years, Why? Because there came a point in which God could no longer tell the difference between the Jew and the Gentile. Basically, Judea began to look like Sodom and Gomorrah. There was no difference between the two. And as a result, basically God, the Holy Spirit in the book of Ezekiel, leaves his temple. He doesn't want to dwell in a place that's full of sin and idolatry. And then the temple's destroyed. Now, seven years later, though, God is bringing His people back after they have suffered the consequences of this, but he's now pleading when He says, "Now stay away from any relationship that would cause you to fall into the same sin." He says, "If you do that, I will walk with you. I will be your God. you will be my sons and daughters. But if you do not do that, what do you think is going to happen? The same result. And we see this again and again. I, you know, I've, I've told you many times. I just, I just can't get enough of saying it, I guess. But you know, that Both Ezra and Nehemiah are dealing with people who've come back from the exile, and what do they do? Immediately, they start forming relationships, close, intimate relationships with unbelievers. And as a result, poor Ezra, he pulls out his hair. He just can't, he can't deal with it. He's like, why? Why? You're so stupid. But... Like I said, I I like Nehemiah's approach better. He goes and pulls out their hair. You're so stupid. How could you do this? Did you not see what happened? Do you not know the consequence? It's going to happen again. And yet, they did it again. Finally, in verse 1 of chapter 7 of our text, the Apostle Paul is saying the same thing to Corinthians. He says, since we have these promises, the promises that God will be a God to us, that we would be called his sons and daughters, that he would walk amongst us. Since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. Why? For the Lord not only declares us to be righteous when we profess faith in Christ, but then he puts a spirit in us so that we can become righteous. His desire is that we would grow in righteousness and holiness, not just to say we're righteous, but that we might grow in these ways. How can we grow in these ways that the people that we're closest to have no desire for those things? What do you think is going to happen? It's going to lead us astray. If you mingle that closely with the world, it will greatly diminish any opportunity for fellowship with God and any opportunity to be an effective ambassador for Christ in this culture. And what does that mean for us today? Well, it means this. If, if you're currently single today, you should not be looking to date an unbeliever ever. Can I say that again? If you're a single person, don't even look to date an unbeliever. What do you think is going to happen? Your heart is going to grow cold toward God again and again. How many times, though, have I seen this happen? How many times have I seen parents just say, whatever? No. Now, again, if the child is not walking with God, I get why they're doing it. But you know what's going to happen. It, it, it leads to disaster. Now, for those of you who have already married an unbeliever, I, I, do, I extend my sympathy and my mercy to you because I, I know it's extremely difficult to be married to someone who doesn't know the Lord, who doesn't love the Lord, And doesn't share your joy for the Lord. It can be quite impossible. But Paul's very clear in that position that you're not to divorce your spouse. God hates divorce. He really does. It's a bad testimony to your spouse. It also can be even more detrimental to your children Nevertheless, it will be a continual struggle. All the days of your life, it will be a continual struggle. The hardest time I think I've ever had as a pastor is trying to encourage uh, sometimes an unbelieving, uh, excuse me, uh, encourage a believing wife who's married to an unbelieving husband. Because oftentimes they just want to get out. They just want to get out of that relationship. And I understand why. I really do. I, I get it. it. It's so hard. But again, that's not the will of the Lord. God, more than anything, He wants you to grow in your faith. He wants you to have a good testimony. He wants to walk with you. That's what He wants. And sometimes we, we live with the consequences of our own decisions. But, but what about What about business relationships? You know, Many of you likely have or currently are working for an unbelieving boss, an unbelieving company that's very antagonistic to your faith. Uh, again, I'm not saying go quit your job immediately, although I'm sure you want to. <laughs> but rather, if there's at all a possibility that you could find a, a job that's at least more amenable to your faith, I would highly encourage it. I wouldn't put that out of your mind. It's very difficult to work in a company that has an evil agenda, evil motives, evil desire for profits that do not care whatsoever about the law of God, I can see why it would be a struggle. But I would say this even more importantly if you're the only Christian in your area and there's none others, be very, very careful because that will start to affect your mindset. Very, very careful. Maybe you would believe it, maybe you wouldn't believe it, but I was a car salesman at one time. I tell you, it's no fun hanging out with a bunch of car salesmen. They do not have the law of God on their heart whatsoever. Now, if there's a Christian car salesman here, please forgive me. But the average one, I didn't know a single Christian car salesman other than myself. I was in seminary while I was doing it, nonetheless. And uh, I did it sort of as a challenge. Can Can I continue to be a witness in this regard? But I can tell you it was very, very difficult. Because every conversation was some sort of sexual thing. It was some sort of... They're telling me how they cheated a customer, and I'm thinking, you know, or just the joking that they would have. I just, I wanted nothing to do with that. Sometimes you can't get out of that type of situation. I get that. Uh, But I would say, again, be very, very careful in these types of relationships, especially if they become some of your better friends. And it does apply to friendships. I can't, uh, you know, especially young people, I think you're much more influenced than some of us who are a little bit older. If your friend network, if your friend group is all non-Christians in you, what do you think is going to happen? You're going to start thinking like they do. You're going to start doing like they do. They're going to sway you. Now, again, I'd say if if your best friend is a non-Christian, you've given your heart to that person, be very, very careful. It won't end well. For those of you who've never heard the book Pilgrim's Progress, I highly recommend it. It shows again and again the importance of Christian friendships. If you look at the relationship between Pilgrim, his name's Christian, and with a a good friend named Faithful, what a blessing it is when you're with someone who actually is on the same path, going in the same direction, wanting to honor the same Lord. But then you see the same pilgrim walking with someone else who's not like that. And what happens? He gets off the path again and again and again. If any young person here today has not heard anything I said thus far, your friendships can either assist you on your way to heaven or can lead you on a direct course to hell. I'm not exaggerating. Be very careful with the relationships that you make. What about church-going people? They're safe. (laughs) Not every person who goes to church is walking with God. Have you guys figured that out yet? It's never a good thing when a Christian who's really walking with the Lord is hanging out with a lukewarm Christian who is stronger in personality than they are, and it does happen. In fact, Paul is saying in this text, um, in this epistle of the Corinthians, that if you find someone who's like that and is leading others astray, kick them out of the church because they have such a horrible effect upon the whole body. It, it really is like a, a poison to the church. But be very careful with the, the friendships that you make. Uh, just yesterday I read in the news, again, I apologize for those who really get over the news here lately, In the news, I read about the Anglican Church Archbishop of York. I think his name is Cottrell. So he was questioning (laughs) this week whether or not the church should use the phrase our Father anymore in the Lord's Prayer. Because that phrase seems patriarchal. And it also is offensive to those who didn't have a good relationship with their earthly dads. So, he's recommending that we somehow change the address to no longer say our father and things of that nature. But it dawned upon me, I was kind of chuckling to myself, it dawned upon me because uh, if this archbishop were in the good state of Michigan, he'd be fined $10,000 in jail time for daring to not call anyone by their proper pronouns. <laughs> so I'm going to invite him to come and, and to Michigan see what happens can't believe he would not call God by the pronouns he's asking for in Scripture. Think of it this way. The whole country of England, many other European countries today, the churches that once were full are almost empty. If you've never been to Europe and you've seen these awesome, beautiful buildings that are completely vacant, it breaks your heart. At one time... These places were well known for the preaching of the gospel of Christ. And now I don't know what they're preaching. Anyone who's involved in a church like Cottrell's, they need to get out immediately. If you're here and you're visiting this week and you're in a church that's like that, it's a sinking ship, it will take you down with it. Get out. Get out now. I was part of the PCUSA. As soon as I realized there was no way that I was ever going to make any impact in changing that denomination, I was like, I'm getting out. It ain't taking me down. I'm going somewhere else. It's the same way with your Christian friendships. It's the same way with your particular churches. same way with the denomination. If you're in a denomination that's going down, get out, because it's going to take you with it. I can tell you that many churches that once had the candlestick of Christ, now the Lord has written over it, Ichabod. Remember that name? It means the glory of the Lord has departed from here because they no longer walk with God they formed intimate relationships with the world and with sinners and have not formed an intimate relationship with Christ. It doesn't just happen to churches. It happens to people who profess the name of Christ on a weekly basis. There's a reason why we have the parable of the sower. Many start out well, seemingly, and then they get choked by the world. Be very careful where you stand. Do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray together. Father, we we don't want to be the church that's constantly negative. We know this is a negative command that we've been given this day. We pray that you would help us to... Not only preach it faithfully, but heed it faithfully as well. We pray as well, Lord, that we would also know that the the positive side of these things is that ultimately you want to be with us, that you love us with an everlasting love, that you desire to walk with us on a daily basis, that you want nothing more than to share in that intimate relationship with us. Lord, we know that's what you desire. You're not trying to keep anything good from us. That's the devil's lie. You only want to give us good and blessing that we might enjoy that every day of our life. We pray, Father, that you would give us the wisdom to see that, and you would help us to turn away from all aspects of foolishness, all aspects of darkness, all aspects of sin. Lord, fill our hearts with the hatred of sin as you hate it, and fill our hearts with the love for righteousness as you love it. We pray all these things in Christ's name.